0: G'day Trail Runners, welcome to episode 22 of the Trail Runners Experience. On today's show, I'll be talking with the one and only Andy Dubois, head coach from Mile 27. Andy is an accomplished ultra runner and triathlete who has a list of performances in races uh, longer than my arm. He is an extremely knowledgeable coach, um, and he's very well respected in the ultra running community, and he coaches some of the best athletes in the world. So we had a really wide-ranging discussion today, and I really am looking forward to, uh, to you guys hearing this, and hopefully you learn something out of it. I'm sure you will. So put your headphones on, put your running shoes on, and let's get running. Okay, welcome to episode 22 of the Trail Runners Experience with um, your hosts, yours truly, uh, Daniel Ferugia. And I'm very fortunate to be joined today via Skype from sunny Byron Bay, um, uh, Andy Dubois. Welcome to the show, Andy.
1: Thanks very much, Daniel. Good to be on board.
0: It's really great of you to uh, share your time and your knowledge with um, the listeners and myself. And um, yeah, so very grateful to uh, get something out of you. Um, so you're, you're in Byron Bay, just very quickly. So you're a former Adelaide boy, is that right?
1: Yeah, I lived in Adelaide till I was oh, 30-ish. Um, and then we moved to
0: London for six years and then Sydney and then ended up in Byron Bay. Nice part of the world.
1: Yeah, um, I can't complain too much. It's, it's not bad, not bad up here at
0: all. Yeah, I bet. Um, are there trails around there?
1: There are a few, to be honest, Adelaide's probably got better trails. I didn't really move here for the trails, but there are some good little trails about the place. We've got Mount Morning, which is a thousand metre climb, uh, about a 40 minute drive away. Yeah. So there's enough, enough to keep me happy.
0: Excellent. Good place to raise a family, I imagine.
1: Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah it is.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Um, yeah. All right. Well, um, we might just jump straight into it. Um, so, yeah. So you're obviously the, you're a coach and an ultra runner. But for the uninitiated, can you probably um, tell us a little bit, of, just give us a little background on, um, I guess we'll say your running background, and then maybe a little bit about your coaching background. I know that might take a while, but just if you want to, we're <laughs> going to go into it. So you, you're, so we'll start with your running. So where would you, where did you start?
1: I started, I've never not run. Um, I've always run, like I ran at school, ran cross country and 800s and 1500s at school, I was decent. I was never, never kind of national level. Maybe decent state runner, but never, um, you know, never really Australian standard at all. Um, and then I left school, floundered for a bit. Um, kept running every now and then, just keeping fit. And then saw Hawaii Man on TV. Um, saw Dave Scott, and Mark Allen's famous 1989 duel. Um, you know, I thought I want to do that. Uh, I don't know why that clicked for me. I don't know why I had a sudden calling to, to do that, but ever since I saw that, that was my sole mission in life. Um, so I started training pretty hard for that. That took five years to, to eventuate. It took me five years to, to qualify. I had a bit of bad luck. Wow.
0: Um, trying to qualify in the Foster man in New South Wales Had uh, bike broke down
1: and got bitten by wasps and oh. all kinds of um and eventually and i just eventually um ran a, did a 919 ironman with a 303 marathon which uh that's finally got me got spots in hawaii which was nice yeah so did hawaii came back qualified did it again so i'd done nine years of ironman by this stage wow uh, and kind of kind of at my end of Well, I wouldn't say I wasn't enjoying it, but I was kind of like a bit lost about where I was going to next with the Ironman. And then we moved to London and the thought of training for an Ironman in London just didn't appeal at all. (laughs) So, uh, I mean, it's bad enough in Adelaide, riding around on a bike, doing 150k bike ride in Adelaide in winter. Yes. Uh, You you take the temperature down another five, eight degrees and do it in London with the traffic and it's just, no, it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So I tough. thought, oh, well, I'll do marathons. I'm a good marathon runner, you know, 3 or 3 marathon, and Man should get me you know, a pretty quick time for a marathon. So I did one, and to be honest, you, know, you finish in less than three hours, and you think, well, what am I doing for the rest of the day? You're like, you're over by 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and, well, Some I'm people think that's a good thing,
0: running. though, Andy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it wasn't. It was kind of like, it was a bit of a letdown. I'm used to Ironman, you know. Yeah. I never raced much doing triathlon. I used to just do Ironman and a few half Ironman. I wasn't really into the short stuff at all. So then a, a friend of mine said, what about this West Highland way race? And it was a 95-mile race point-to-point point in Scotland. I thought, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. So, yeah, signed up to that. Trained pretty hard, what I thought was pretty hard anyway. And then um, race day came and I took off uh, with a guy by the name of Jez Bragg, which uh, a few of your listeners may uh, know is one of the uh, UK's top ultra runners. And that year he actually won the race and set the course record.
0: Right. So I ran with him for 20 miles and um, <laughs> suffered
1: like I've never suffered before in any race before or since. Uh, ended up finishing about 10 hours slower than him.
0: Would you call that um, a rookie error?
1: Yeah, look, there's rookie errors and there's rookie errors, and I made all of them. <laughs> Every single one of them that you could possibly make in an ultra, I made on that day. Yep. Um, but there was some positives to that, because I learned a lot, and um, being a bit of a... a student of the sport. I kind of did a lot of research after that and worked out where my mistakes lay. And then uh, I kind of thought, I should do another one because I think I'm better than that. I think I've got something more to give to the sport than just that one. So I signed up to UTMB and in those days, UTMB didn't have to qualify. There was no lottery. You just had to be quick on the trigger to to enter. So I signed up to UTMB and UTMB was my second ultra. Wow. Um, Yeah, which is not not recommended, but doing a 95 mile race as your first dog does not recommend either. But um, I kind of top person that kind of throws myself in headlong and either sinks or swims. So I did UCMB and I had the best race of my life. And I finished in 74th and did a sub 29 hour race. Phenomenal. Had an absolutely dream race. Everything went perfectly and had a ball Yeah. And uh, haven't looked back since then.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. So. What would you attribute that success to? I mean, you can't say, there's no, there's no flukes in ultras, the way I see it, you know. You don't, no, you, it's not. Would you say that you had learned so much from the, your first ultra that you really took a lot yeah. of stuff on board?
1: Yeah, I learned a huge amount. I mean, a few basic things which will resonate with most of your listeners. Uh, before we even get to the race training, I just made it a, a ton more specific. Um, I didn't really know what hills was. You know, us trail runners talk about road runners not knowing what hills really are. Mm. Um, well, that was my experience too. You know, I, I looked at the West Island Way course and it looked hilly, so, uh, you know, Foster's the Man course, those of you old enough to remember that course has got a couple of hills in it, but they're little kind of pimples compared to what we experience in trail runs. And West Island yeah. Way only had 3,500, 4,000 metres of it, So it wasn't like 10,000 UCMB. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I just didn't train properly for it, didn't train the downhills enough, didn't do enough strength work, didn't do enough hill work. Did plenty of long runs, that was my mistake. I was doing 75K as a long run for West Highland weight, but it was just not specific enough. It just wasn't relative to the course. Yeah. So, in me, my longest long run was 40K, um, but I had two and a half, three thousand 3,000 metres of vert in that run. Um, Did a lot of strength training, a lot of stair reps, um, and just did a ton of vert. And then race day just took it out super easy. You know, I was six hundred and fiftieth or something at sixty k mark, and I passed almost six hundred people in the last hundred k almost.
0: That's amazing. Uh, you do I hear just, that UTMB is, just, I mean, and those kinds of races, they're more. It's a race of attrition, you know, because you just got to. It's so often you hear the smart runners are the ones that hang back early, you know.
1: Yeah. Um, but I, that first downhill, um, people were running down it like it was. The finish at the race was the bottom of the hill. I saw guys run, tumble, somersault, land on their feet, and keep running again, going past me. <laughs> thought, this is just stupid. Like, I didn't you know, keep in mind this time I had no experience at all on mountains, no experience at all on technical trails. I trained on the trails in Hampstead Heath and London. Um, yeah. so I had just no experience of a hill of a trail hill that was longer than 90 seconds, um, which is the longest trail hill in London. There were a few three or four minute road hills that yeah. I used to barrel down, so I had zero experience. So because of that, and when I did West Highland, I didn't know how much I didn't know, whereas UTMB, I realized how much I didn't know and how much experience I didn't have. Yeah. So I took it super, super easy, and that was the thing that kind of led to such a good race, because once I got to Cormier and felt good, I kind of thought, you know what, I think I can do pretty well on this. and. For those who've done you to they know that it's not really a technical course, and if you can run downhill as well. You can you can have a good race, and um, that's what happened with me. I just paced it well and was able to run all the downhills uh, for the whole race, uh, and it just paid off.
0: It's uh, really interesting. There's so many good points you brought up there, just to, that I that have raised so many other questions for me. One of them being um, um, specificity that you um, as a as a coach myself and you know people, there's not enough specificity in, in people's training these days. And I think that it's, um, fascinating that you really, you, you made, you tailored your training a lot more and you probably do it more these days. Um, you know, if you're going to run a flat ultra, you've got to train for the terrain. You know, if you're going to run a hilly ultra, you've got to train for the terrain. And, um, and it's so often people think that I mean, m- more vert is not always better, you know, it's, correct. Yeah. I think that's the way I see it. So you obviously agree. But yeah, that's um, phenomenal. And I really like the way that you, you obviously respected the distance. You had you learned to respect the race. I learned to
1: respect it. I didn't respect it the first time. I, yeah. I went into the ninety-five miles and thinking, I'm a good runner. Like if these guys can do it, I can do it. Like I've got you nine know, man in my legs. So I can do this. Didn't respect the distance at all. Second yeah. time, massive respect for the distance. <laughs> it's and, so funny. Uh, yeah, paid off.
0: It's um interesting actually looking at UTMB this previous one just this last instalment, um, and you look at the, the the elite runners especially in the men's that um there were so many DNFs in the um in the uh, race you know guys like Jim Wormsley and uh, Zach Miller and obviously Killian but he was bitten by a bee stung by a bee but um you know like a lot of these guys they're doing exactly that even though they've got so much they're such good runners it seems to me there's a lot of ego driving their races, you know. Um, I don't know, maybe that's it, or or they're just pushing so hard and they're on the edge of breaking point, and they, yeah, because how many of them broke, you know, so many? Yeah, look,
1: I think, I think you're part, part ego and part on the edge. I think those guys, um, you, you compare those guys to, to me and for most of the listeners will be the same. Like, we just want to have a good race and finish. You know, yeah. If, if I finished in 32 hours or 35 hours, I still would have been absolutely stoked. I was just happen to have a good race and finish in 28-ish. But for those guys, you know, they don't want to finish 25th or 50th. They want to finish 10th or 5th or 3rd or 1st. So what that means is they're running at their edge, running at their limits, and sometimes they get it wrong. And what happened this year is they got it wrong. Plenty of people just pushed more than what they were capable of taking that risk because sometimes it pays off and sometimes it doesn't. And That's true. Those guys, they are willing to take those risks because the rewards – are there if the risk pays off. Whereas for most of us, the reward for most of us is a DNF or instead of finishing in 37 hours, you finish in 35 hours. Like, no one really cares. Yeah. The risk is not worth taking to get an extra hour when it doesn't make make a scrap of difference. Whereas those guys, it's all about finding that fine line between nailing the race and having a race to perfection or blowing up and falling to pieces like Zach and... Jim and a few other guys did. Um, that's just racing for those guys.
0: Yeah, I suppose. Um, I know someone like uh, Jim Warbley, he's got a, quite a high DNF ratio if you look at his career, but he's also got some of the fastest times in history, you know. And so it's... Uh, yeah,
1: Jim just races on the edge. He's yeah. um, He'll never race, unless, he, unless he's going to change, he'll never race and leave any questions about whether he could have gone any faster.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Which is always uh, exciting I mean, to watch.
1: Sometimes that pays off, yeah. and many times it doesn't.
0: It's very reminiscent of um, Steve Prefontaine back from the seventies. I don't know. You, I'm sure you're yeah, familiar yeah. with him. You know what his famous quote was: um, "To give anything less than your best is to uh, sacrifice the gift." You know? Yeah. And so I, I feel like a lot of American runners adopt that. But um, so it, it is exciting to watch. But I think. It, it probably works better in a 5k race than it does in a 100 mile race
1: so yeah the only thing is i think if if you ran if you grab those you know top 10 top 20 guys um and set them off at, not that you could ever do this but if you could set them off at kind of one hour or half hour intervals so they had no idea where any other runner was around them and, and made it in fact a time trial
0: yeah
1: uh, then i think you'd see a far different pacing strategy yeah because you're not actually racing each other, there's no egos involved in the first kind of 60k to worry about. You're just going, okay, what pace can I sustain to finish this as fast as I can? I think that would lead to a very, very different outcome um, in terms of blow-ups. Uh, but now that's the joy of racing is you have to deal with other people in the race. Even, even you know, at my level and at most of our listeners' level, you know, we kid ourselves that we're, we're just kind of you know, racing ourselves, but. You know, we're always looking around to see where our mates are, and, you know, yeah. look at results afterwards and say, oh, well, I beat him or I should have beaten him. <sighs> so we're still racing others to a degree. And I think that's the fun part of racing is, is dealing with other people around you and either ignoring them, um, early on the race or using them later on the race to try and get the best out of you.
0: Exactly. I think it's, I think, um, being competitive is quite healthy. You know, it does, it's definitely, a, for me, it's a driver when I'm out there yeah, and, and, um, we a lot of people say, "Oh, I'm not racing. I'm just having." But, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a little bit competitive, even if it's just, no. even if you're just right at the back of the pack and you just want to beat the uh, the sweep. You know, that's being yeah. competitive. So, um, exactly. yeah, oh, that's really um awesome. So um, we might jump th- move along and um, we might get into the coaching. So you transitioned at some point to to become a uh, a coach. So how did that transition take place? Um,
1: yeah, I am. Um, I was growing up you know i was relatively academic at school with maths and physics and stuff like that so sports science back in the mid 80s wasn't wasn't a big thing so i just kind of naturally gravitated towards mathematical engineering surveying type things so i did the kind of five years at uni became a surveyor Um, but you know as early on as year 10 11 and 12 at school i was grabbing rob dickistella's training book and picking it to pieces and learning all about vo 2 and thresholds, all that kind of stuff. So it was always an interest of mine, even at school, but I just never followed through for a while. But then, at the age of 23 or something, I kind of had been working as a surveyor for a year and a half. And I thought, you know what, this just isn't for me. I'm not enjoying it. So I quit, retired. Um, didn't know what I was going to do, but thought this isn't for me. So took some time off work, just training full time for Ironman at that stage. And I thought, you know what, I-, I love Ironman, so why don't I get into something kind of related to movement? So did personal training for a while, did work in a gym for a while, did a triathlon coaching course, a strength condition coaching course. And virtually for the next kind of 15, 20 years, I did mostly personal training with a little bit of kind of triathlon coaching, a bit of marathon coaching, just kind of for the odd client who, who wanted it. And then when I got into Ultras, um, I kind of really passionate about that after UTMB and kind of thought, I really enjoy this. And I started teaching myself a lot more about that. And then a few mates said, oh, can you help me out training for that? So yeah, I'd love to. Um, so that started to grow a little bit. And then it wasn't until I got back into Sydney um, and someone said to me, do you do online coaching? I said, well, yeah, of course I do. At the, at the, at the time, I didn't do it at all. <laughs> so I, I madly set up the website to do online coaching. I was doing you know one-on-one coaching with people that I saw you know, each week or whatever, but it wasn't online at all. So I madly set up the website and um, offered that as a thing. And then gradually that started growing a lot quicker than the personal training side of things started growing. So at one point I kind of had to make a call, do I focus all my energies on the the coaching or do I focus all my energy on the personal training? And it was a a very easy decision to make. So I quit the personal training, free up some more time to get more into the coaching and just let that kind of see how it went. And it grew pretty quickly from then. And the last kind of two or three years I've virtually been booked out with a waiting list um, I've taken on Ben and Scotty um, to take over some of the, the inquiries that are happy to go with those
0: guys. That's, uh, that's um, Ben Duffus and Scott Hawker, is that
1: right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. correct,
0: Scotty and, and Ben, yeah. yeah. Yeah, excellent. So, wow, yeah, so um, you're obviously your, your business or your, 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 the website mile27.com, and so um, you uh, you do everything through there. And so it's great that it's, it's really blown up. Have you seen like a huge – I mean, in the last few years – trail running in particular and ultras has it boomed almost exponentially have you really noticed the increase in in requests for coaching and things like yeah, that Yeah, it's, it's grown since
1: I I started online coaching in 2011 um, and back then there, there were some coaches around for sure uh, but there wasn't wasn't that many Fast forward seven years and there's a stack of coaches out there and the demand is still growing and growing. Like I'm still, if I could clone myself into four, mm-hmm. I'd have four coaches all fully booked out. Yeah. Uh, the demand is just there. I have to keep kind of deferring people onto Scotty and Ben and sometimes they just want me and so they have to go on the waiting list. Um, so the demand has grown massively and that can only come from the growth in ultra running as well. Um it's just you, know, you just got to look at uh, races like UTA, starting from a couple of hundred people to now, I think six thousand people sign up for the races over uh, the four different distances um, over those few days. And yeah, it, we state in Australia, it's grown, and in Europe and UTMB and all those races, the demand has kind of it's just grown massively. What do you um, think is great for, me, it's great for business? It's great for people in the sport. It's just a good thing all around, I think.
0: Oh, Absolutely. I mean, I mean, and, and here in Adelaide, as you would know, it's just. There are so many races now. There are. There's literally a, a trail race almost every weekend. You know, at least. Yeah, one, it's, and so,
1: because really um, when I was training for Ironman, we used to do trail running in um, in the winter, in the off season, and we never even called it trail running. We just called it running, and we just went on trails. Like trail running wasn't a thing. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> there was cross country, but the, no, there was no trail running. There was there was races on trails, but it was just for road runners that during winter wanted a bit of a change and did. Running on trials, we, know, I used to call cross country all the
0: time. Yeah,
1: yeah. But now there's it's just um, yeah, it's 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 exploded, which is great. It's just so much more variety, so many more options. Yeah. Uh, uh so many more entry levels into the sport. Like uh, there's shorter distance races, longer distance races, so many more things to choose from. So much more advice and information out there for runners getting into the sport. So it's it's a plus all round.
0: Yeah. No, it's fantastic. I think um, the to attribute that I think. Um, my theory is that there's a thing, things like Strava, I think, have had a big impact on the growth of the sport. But I, I mean, mean, I don't really know. But and maybe social media. The, I'm trying. I've been trying to Think of why the sport is growing so much, and or who knows, you know, what do you have the, any theories?
1: I think a few reasons. I think triathlon was the boom sport back in the kind of eighties, nineties. Uh, that was where, you know, people who wanted to challenge. People look for a challenge. You know, people get to you know ish or something. They start having a family and they want something else. Uh, they want to find a challenge. And you know, triathlon was that sport in the kind of nineties. Triathlon's expensive. Like people have realised nowadays. You no know, bikes aren't getting cheaper. And an entry level triathlon bike's are you know, five thousand dollars. Yeah. Back like when I was doing, you know, three thousand bought you an expensive bike that b- barely buys you anything these days. Yeah. And triathlon's so time consuming with three sports. When I was training. Oh, geez 30 35 hours a week um all up doing you know 70 to 90k a week running 400 plus on the bike and 15 swimming yeah. a couple of weight sessions stretching all that kind of stuff and it's just not sustainable for the majority of people whereas trial running you can you can train five hours a week and do trial runs yeah. you can do less you can do five to ten hours a week and do ultras. you know so it's a lot easier accessible and it still provides that challenge that I think a lot of us are craving in our lives. Yeah. And then you get things like Strava and social media showing you, you know, magnificent photos and drone footages of these stunning runs in all around the world. You've got to think, oh, that looks awesome.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: Um, so you get that kind of excitement around it as well. So I think it's multifactorial in, in why it's grown and so popular.
0: Yeah. It's definitely then, one of the um, the positives of social media. I mean, you can people like to draw on all the negatives of social media, but I think – there are quite a few positives, and that's definitely yeah. one of them. Um, yeah, no, that's a. I I think I totally agree with you there. Um, I just so going back to your coaching itself. So like, I'd like to sort of delve into maybe like your coaching philosophy. So how do you approach you know coaching your mm-hmm. athletes when you've got a new athlete, for example? So what?
1: Yeah, look, good mm-hmm. question. I mean, I think the thing I found when I started ultra coaching is that most people um and there are some great ultra coaches out there don't get me wrong there's some really good coaches out there Um, but a lot of coaches started off by taking what we kind of knew work for marathon runners and just going okay let's just make it a bit longer for ultra runners and i think when you when you start looking at the research uh, that's now out there for ultra runners um, it's just not the same it's just you you can't look at a marathon program and add an extra five or ten miles onto your long run expect to do well at 100K trail race, just different demands on the body. And a simple example is, you know, marathon coaching and distance coaching in general is all about improving the aerobic engine, mm. improving threshold, VO2, all that kind of stuff. But when you look at an ultra, let's take 100K or 100 mile ultra, and you ask people what's the, the main limiting factor that causes you to run slower than you'd like to in a race? And the number one factor for the vast majority of people is my legs are just smashed to bits. Yeah. I just can't run anymore. Um, and you ask them, well, how do you feel effort-wise? They go, well, breathing-wise, I'm fine. My legs are just so sore, I can't I, I'm walk running for the last 20 miles of a mile or. And you kind of think, well, do we need to rethink how we train athletes? Do we need to rethink about how we can train our athletes to better condition the legs so they can run the last 20 or 30 or 40K of a 100K, 100-mile race? And I think that's what my brain first went to is due to my experience in, in the first race that I did. It's like, well, fitness-wise, I know I'm fitter than the people that beat me by a lot of, a lot no, by hours and hours and hours. I know I'm way fitter than them. I know if I lined up next to them in a marathon, I'd probably beat them by half an hour. But why do they beat me by four, five, six, seven, eight hours in a hundred mile race? Yeah. Um, so that's what my my head started with my coaching. It's like, why is that that happen? And I think that's where it stemmed. Like when I really started to approach it rather than from working upwards for a marathon is trying to pick apart the sport and analyze the demands and the needs of ultra runners and then try and figure out what the best training methods, techniques, systems, progressions, periodization, et cetera, is for those runners. Um, So so that's why it's a little bit different to, to some coaches out there that might have a more traditional kind of marathon endurance coaching background. So that's where you talk about things like, you know, downhill reps to condition the legs, Uh, more hiking training for running, you know, in your long runs, doing more, mixing up the hiking and the running, more strength training, stair reps, you know, all that kind of stuff, which conditions the legs better. Um, Not to say that threshold training and and VO2 and all the traditional ways we coach endurance athletes aren't valid. They are, but it's just a case of working out where they are valid in the training program. And the the typical model, you know, when I learned um, kind of endurance coaching was, You start off with an easy aerobic base, you build that aerobic base, and then gradually you get faster and faster to race day, and your fastest sessions are in the last kind of month leading up to your race. Yeah. Now, that's not, in my mind, that's not how you should approach ultra training. In fact, you should do almost the exact opposite. Yes, you do a base phase to start with, but I I typically start people on the shortest, fastest reps first, build them up to it so we're not going into 400-meter reps off no speed work at all there's there's a, a transition phase to do that but you get them doing the fast work first get them building up their vo2 get you building up that kind of neuromuscular coordination in their legs to to tick the legs over quickly and then you progress from 400 a.m a meter 12 meter reps into eventually doing three by 20 minute tempo runs and doing fast finish long runs yeah in the kind sort of six weeks before the race so it's kind of humanization flipped on its head traditional uh, traditionally the exact opposite of what it usually is. Um, and that I found worked much much better and that's pretty much what most of the good ultra coaches do these days is we've We've changed from the traditional model of start slow and get quicker right up to the race day Which works great for 5k 10k all that kind of stuff, but it just doesn't work for ultras It's just a different demand and different training systems. We need to do on our legs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I that's um, really interesting the um... One of the things that I've heard a lot and I sort of adopt with the people that I've coached mm-hmm. and um, and that is we're not really, in ultras, we're not trying to increase our top speed. We're trying to increase our bottom speed or our, our you know, we, yeah. we want to, what's the slowest we can run while we're, what's the fastest we can run when we're dead on our feet, you know? Yeah. And so I think that when you change your thinking that way, it's like, so yeah, can you keep ticking those legs over at six and a half minute Ks? you know when you're absolutely got no energy reserves you know like and the thing it has a lot to do with getting used to running slower and um i hear a lot of um discussion about you know in, in even on a flatter you know people who are training for a flatter ultra so a, you know flatter 100 mile or whatever teaching them to to periodically walk and to practice walking you know like um because obviously I mean, unless you're right at the very pointy end of the sport, I think it's going to be very hard. There's not many people who are going to run the entire one hundred miles of a race, and no, exactly. uh, yeah. So it seems um, it's important to use those muscles um, different the way in that you know the ability to walk properly. So I don't know if you uh, agree with that, but um, yeah.
1: Look, definitely. I think the thing I found recently is I've been working with power meters for runners recently, and um, what that gives me information on is I can now look at how much walking, how much running they do in a race um, and how much this their effort level declines um, throughout a race. And what we see is if we take a typical 15-hour UTA runner, they're spending almost half their time walking in that 15 hours, roughly six to seven hours of that 15 hours is spent hiking. So then you think back to, okay, well, how much hiking do you do in, in your long runs and training? And a lot of people, they try and run as much as they can. It's like, well, you're you're not training yourself as you're going to be in a yeah. race. Like, people think if you're fit enough to run, you're fit enough to hike. And anybody who's seen somebody walk at seven or eight kilometers an hour and then try to do it themselves will know it's quite tricky to walk that fast and yeah. sustain. Like, it's a skill. There's a technique involved, and it's a skill. You can't just think, well, I can run five-minute k's for a marathon, I should be able to walk six, seven-minute k's. Like, well, no, not unless you've actually trained it. So I, I think definitely um, walking and hiking as part of your training needs to be addressed, and that's that depends on the runner. Like if you look at – like I've got data for Ben Duffus when he came second in UTA this year, and he spent about 30 minutes of his nine hours, 24 hiking. Um, that's it. For all the hills and all the stairs that were there, only yeah. five, 30 minutes that was hiking. So for someone like him, it's completely different. But if you're a 14, 15-hour-plus runner, you're spending a significant amount of time hiking in that. And even if, as you said, on a flat course, if it's something like the Brisbane Valley Trail um, Race, milo, especially pancake flat, um, unless you're at the pointy end, you're going to be walking a lot of that yeah. later on. So you need to train that. And the other thing that you mentioned there, which I wanted to talk about, was the uh, the pacing. I An email from a client this morning, he said... Um, I'm training for a 100-kilometer race. Do I, do I need to be doing, for long run, some faster efforts to get used to race pace? And he uses a power meter so I can tell how fast uh, his 100k is going to be and how fast his training runs are going to be. Cool. And his training runs are actually faster than his race pace. Yeah. Uh, and that's standard for, for a typical average you know, 100k runner. Um, your training runs are going to be roughly race pace for the first 50k, and probably quicker than race pace for the last 50k. So you're already doing race pace training and that's so different to typical aerobic endurance distance training because you know, marathon pace is faster than long run pace. Yes. Whereas 100k and 100 mile, it's slower. So once again, that's something else that's different to how you coach ultra runners because race pace is slower than your typical training pace unless you're coaching elites. Now even someone like Ben, his race pace uh, for 100k is only slightly faster His training pace slightly, Um, so it's very, very different, and you've you've got to really look at that. Too many runners come from that marathon um, training background where you think about race pace being faster, it's not faster, it's slower,
0: yeah,
1: Um, or at least no faster. Um, And something else you touched on there was you know doing easy runs easy, and that's something I see so so many people making the mistake of. I mean, you've got guys like you know Kip Chaghee, who's yeah. You know, world marathon record holder with two hours, two minutes. And he runs his slow runs, he starts out at five minute Ks and he'll build up to, you know, three and a half, some four minute Ks for long, easy runs.
0: Yeah.
1: And that, that's a minute slower than his marathon pace. Yeah. Now, you take a, a three and a half hour uh, marathon runner, so it's five minute K pace, and ask them what pace they run their long, slow runs at. They'll yeah. probably say 520s,
0: 530s. Yeah, it's too close.
1: It's too close. It should be six plus, you know. And the the problem with that is they say, I can only ever get to 60, 70K a week and then I start breaking down. Well, you know, the reason runners can run 150Ks a week, 100 miles a week is because they run their slow runs super, super easy. And if you're a five-minute K marathon runner, your slow run should be six-minute Ks or slower. And if you ran all your slow runs at six-minute K plus, you might be surprised at how much volume you can actually get in assuming you've got the time to do that, of course.
0: It's so big. And,
1: and we know that the more running you do, the quicker you'll get, even if that's slow. You know, There's there's a reason why 800-metre, 1,500-metre, 3,000-metre Olympic athletes clock up 100 miles a week in training. It's because they know that the more running you can do, the bigger base you build, the better you get at running, and the quicker you run even the faster distances at. Um, but people break down because they don't run those slow runs slow enough.
0: That's um, so interesting and it's something that actually leads me into my, uh, my next question in a way. Um, and as a coach myself, obviously not as experienced as yourself, but I dare say you would encounter this problem quite a lot is with new clients and new athletes is that very problem is they, they start, they do all their training runs, um, their easy runs, they do them too fast and their um, fast runs, they're doing too slow. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Because. Well, Guys,
1: for easy runs at five and twenty k. Yeah. And then a speed session at four fifty. Yeah. It's like that. You know, if, if you're doing five twenty for easy runs, your speed session should be sub four.
0: Yeah. Would you it's say just, that's a common problem for you though with your new, with new clients?
1: Oh, hugely. Yeah. 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 It, it's the number one. It's the first thing I address with new clients. Is okay. Well, how hard are you running your easy runs at? Yeah. Because I know if I want them to do harder runs for longer runs, the only way they're going to tolerate that is if their easy runs and long runs are done slow enough. Yeah. Um, otherwise, they're just going to break down. So that's the first thing we address in, in any new client. I
0: mean, the evidence is there, and there's so much yeah. research that has been done on, on low-intensity, high-volume training um, that it's, I think, but I think the biggest, my opinion is there's a big problem, I mean, I guess it's human ego is one factor, because you, you, and, or people feel like the whole concept of no pain, no gain You know they think oh i've got that was too easy it felt too easy there's no benefit in that but um i always talk about uh today's run is preparing you for tomorrow's run and tomorrow's run is preparing you for the next day's run and if you're if you're still carrying like some serious doms from a run three days ago unless it was a race i mean you've gone too hard i always say yeah
1: yeah i mean easy runs you should be able to finish an hour easy run and if your coach was at your front door and said, "Off you go, do it again," you should go. Oh, okay, fair enough. Yeah. And have no issues at all doing that. I,
0: I you know? blame this. I blame Strava a lot for that. To be I was just about thing.
1: to say that. Yeah. yeah. Strava is, uh, I think, a big thing. When I, I had someone comment on my Strava a while back and said, "Andy, look, I know you're a good runner, but I, I see a lot of your runs and they're really slow. I just wondered why." Yeah, I get that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, this is why.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, it's a. You got to put your ego on the shelf for these kinds of things you know and because you've got these segments all over town and all over the trails and this thing and you get into little these little segment wars i've talked about this a lot on the podcast um these little segment battles with people who you might be a friend with um and you know they get the crown and you get the crown or they get a trophy and you get a trophy and it becomes a race in and of itself and 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 i've fallen into the trap in previous years yeah i've grown up a little bit matured a little bit (laughs) but um it's definitely it's an interesting thing like i think on the whole i think strava has been really positive for the sport but i do think that's a, a problem that people worry about you know if they're if you haven't done the most or the fastest or you know the you know the most kilometers the highest elevation for the for the week and you know where as opposed to just quality you know how do you yeah. how does it feel for your body and 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 like you talk in the scientific term like of n equals one you know we're looking at a sample group of um a sample group of one like what works for me doesn't work for you and what works for you doesn't necessarily work for someone else
1: and, exactly right i coach an athlete to the 100k world champs uh, this year and um, about a month before the race, she kind of was looking at some of the other teammates in um, Strava. Things go, I'm really worried. I'm not doing as much as them, blah, 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 blah. blah. Um, and I just kind of you know, told her what she'd done and how well she progressed. And she had an absolutely fantastic race come race day. She was only three minutes slower than her personal best in weather conditions that she should have been 20, 30 minutes slower.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's all about proper training, making sure the easy runs and the long runs are done at the correct intensity. So then you can do the high-quality sessions at the correct intensity as well. I think that the trap people make is they'll go out for an easy run, Uh, and whether they're with someone else or not doesn't really make a lot of difference, but they'll feel good, and so the pace will be be a bit quicker than what a typical easy run would be, but it feels easy if they just go with it. Yeah. And I always get asked, like, is it okay to run a bit faster if it still feels easy? And my my usual answer is no. It's because if if your usual easy run is, say, six-minute k's, um, and you're running, say, 540s because it feels very easy. I mean, it might feel easy aerobically, your heart rate might be down and your breathing might be good, but your legs are still running 20 minutes quicker, 20 seconds per K quicker. So the load on the legs is more than usual. Just yep. because it feels easy doesn't mean they're working less. They're still working, but they're still doing, doing the physical work of 20 seconds per K more. So whether that feels easy or not is immaterial. The fact is you're going faster. And that means your speed session the next day is going to be compromised because you ran 20 seconds per k faster on your easy run the day before. Yeah. Save those fresh leg feeling for your faster sessions, Your hard sessions don't don't make the most of fresh legs on easy runs and go a bit faster. Make sure they stay easy.
0: It gets into that whole junk miles um, terminology, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. I mean,
1: you just wasting. Uh, people ask about junk miles and they say, oh, if I run to work with a mate and it's super slow, is that junk miles? It's like, no, it's not. If it's super slow, it's probably not junk miles at all. Because A, it's probably race pace ultra if it's super slow.
0: Yeah.
1: It's pace aerobic conditioning. C, it's adding more neuromuscular stimulus to, to your running kind of brain connection. Uh, and the more running you do, the better you get at it from a skill point of view. Uh, and D, it's not impacting on other runs. Whereas if you run that mid kind of pace that feels okay but it's faster than easy, that's more junk miles because it's not contributing to a hard training session. If anything, it's kind of detracting from a hard training session. Yeah. And it's just, it's more risk of injury. So to me, those harder than easy runs, but easier than hard runs are the, are the real junk miles.
0: I think this is really something that I have had so many conversations with um, runners about. And people, I think a lot of people have trouble getting their head around it. They know, they, I think they know it like cognitively but I don't think that they can translate that into actually doing it unless they're no. w- are working with a coach, you know? And uh, I mean, yeah, it's it's the biggest thing. And like one of my, some of my most quality runs that I have done that I do, my wife runs as well, and she is um, a bit, a bit slower than myself. And it's, it's great. When, I mean, we've got three small children, so we don't get to run together very often, but when yeah. we, when we do go out for a run, it's fantastic. You know, like it's like a date. And, um, we, um, we, but I, I let her set the pace. If we're going out for an easy run, I run at her easy pace. So oftentimes it's like two minutes slower than my, than than my pace. And, but I actually, when I've, I've gone through periods where I've trained like that a lot, I feel great. You know, I'm still getting the time on the legs I'm still yeah. I'm still getting a, a, that aerobic workout, but it's very very easy, and um, I'm ready to go for a, a high quality run later in the day or um, or the next day. So um, yeah, there's definitely a lot to be said. I think for easy easy running and uh,
1: yep. The other thing people forget is like I remember um, she must have been back in the eighties, Lisa Onyeki. Um, yeah. Yeah, Adelaide viewers, listeners would uh, probably remember that name if they're old enough. She said, um, for those who don't remember, she was a uh, elite Australian uh, marathon runner. I can't remember her times, but it was Olympic standard. Um, anyway, she said one of the most painful runs she did was a run with a friend that took her four hours to run the marathon huh. because she's used to running, you know, three thirty minute case, not um, five and a half minute case. Yeah. Now, there's lessons to be learned from that in that in an ultra like. If you think, if your usual easy run pace is six-minute Ks, and you you can crank out 30, 40 Ks at six-minute K pace no problems at all, probably in the back end of 100 K, you're going to be running at seven to eight-minute Ks. Um, Now, for a lot of people, they're just not comfortable with that. They just haven't done enough slow running to feel like that's running, and they just stop to walk because walking feels more comfortable. Of course, it's slower because you're walking at six-minute Ks um, or, you know, a couple, couple minutes per k slower than what you could be running if you're running even at seven or eight minute k's. Yeah. Um, but because they're not used to running so slow, they, it, they just don't feel comfortable at doing that. So they end up walking a lot more. Whereas if you've done a lot of easy runs at that super slow pace, you can go, okay, that's fine. I, I know how to shuffle along at seven minute k's. And let's face it, seven minute k pace would, if you could average seven minute k's over 100 k, you'd win a lot of trail ultra races.
0: Yeah, I know. And, it sounds uh, phenomenal, it, uh, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it's it's yeah. not... It's a quite a quick pace to average over a whole whole distance. So if you can do your long runs at a slower than usual pace, then that's a good thing. And so I think if if you're, the, if you're a social runner that wants to run with other people, choose people that are slower than you to run your easy runs at. And choose people faster than you to run your hard runs out, and you you'll get the
0: best, best of both worlds. That's really great advice. I think, um, yeah, excellent. There's, I think we've we've thoroughly dug into that topic. I, I I could talk about that particular topic for a very long yeah, time. Like, <laughs> it's I, it's something that I, I get really passionate about. And and I also say just a last thing, and you may agree. Like we're supposed to enjoy running, and it doesn't always have to hurt. And I always say to yeah. new new people, is it if it hurts, you're doing something wrong. You know. Yeah. Um, or something's not right. Yeah, so so it doesn't have to hurt, especially no, early yeah, on. Yeah, I
1: agree totally. I mean, I yeah. think breezy runs, one thing I do for easy runs is I'll take my phone with me and stop and take photos every now and then. Because oh. um, it just forces me to stop. So if I happen to feel good and the pace starts to pick up a little bit and I'm not checking my watch at all to know that, yeah. and I have to stop for a photo, just the action of stopping for a minute, whipping the camera out, and taking a quick pick just breaks the momentum and I get back and I'm back to my easy run pace again. So yeah,
0: stops you getting carried away.
1: Yeah. and then Just to take in the view, snap a few pics, selfies, whatever take takes, float your boat. It's just a good way to break it up a little bit and keep that intensity down.
0: Yeah. Um, no, that's a fantastic piece of advice. I think. Um, yeah. All right. So I'm going to jump into the next thing. We're, we're covering some really interesting topics. I'm loving it. Um, I wanted to talk about motivation. So, We've sort of looking more about, um, like, what is – how do you motivate your clients and sort of what your motivations are for as a runner and a coach? There's a lot there.
1: Yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs> um, okay. truth of motivation, it's a really interesting one because I think that drives everything. Um, if, you, if you're not motivated, then you're going to struggle to race or train. And I think the first thing – like, when a client says to me, like, I'm a bit unmotivated at the moment – First thing we've got to look at is, well, what races have you got planned and what training are you doing? Um, because I think, particularly in in Australia, where we're kind of a bit more isolated in terms of the distances involved, whether you live in Adelaide or Sydney or whatever, we, we tend to race a lot locally. Uh, unlike Europe, you know, if you live in London, it's a 45-minute flight to Paris and our train ride to. Uh, try to um, – Geneva, an hour train ride to Chamonix and in the French Alps in less than two hours, whereas if you live in Adelaide, two and a half hour flight to Sydney or you know, vice versa. So you, you tend to race locally, yeah. and what that means is you tend to kind of just race the races that are around. Like if you're in Adelaide, you do Yarabilla, you do Hyson, you, know, you do all the local ones. And the problem with that is you can get a bit stale. Like you're just going race after race after race, doing the usual ones because everyone else is doing them. It's what you did last year. And then you wonder why you're not liking your training very much. Yeah, I think because it's, it's, you're not really addressing why you're running and why you're racing. Um, so the first thing I ask people is like, why do you race? Like, what do you get out of racing, and what motivates you to race? What, what do you enjoy about racing, and what kind of races do you like doing? Because for me, when I when I pick a race, I, I want to feel butterflies when I when I look at the race website. Yeah. I want to get nervous and excited about that race and kind of think, geez, this is this is going to be interesting. Whether that's because it's the distance, the terrain, or I've set myself a time goal, I'm not too sure whether that's kind of achievable or not. There, there needs to be something about the race for me that really excites me, part terrifies me, but part kind of like this is going to be awesome. And I think once you've got a race like that, then motivation is a lot easier because as soon as you've signed up, you think, right, this is this is kind of like going to be tough, in, in a good way. Um, and I need to knuckle down and kind of really train hard. I think if the race is too challenging, I think it goes the other way because then you start doubting yourself from day one and you'll self- subconsciously start sabotaging your efforts to train to give yourself an, a- an out. Oh no, it was just too hard for me. You know, I didn't do the right training and your DNS kind of, you know. I out. Yeah. yeah. Because it was too hard. So I think you need to pick a race that's in at the edge of your ability. Yeah. Um, but even you no, know, so it's not even about challenging yourself too far. For some people, it's not about stepping outside the comfort zone. It's just doing something you love. Yeah. So in that case, it's about picking the race that you know you're going to enjoy, and that might be somewhere different. Because it might just be, look, I just want to run somewhere different that's got different terrain. I'm sick of running Yarabella and Hyson every year. I just want to go. To the Blue Mountains, or to Tasmania, or to New Zealand, and just see some different scenery. So it doesn't you don't always have to step outside your comfort zone. You don't always have to be challenging yourself to the extreme. Um, you know, I think we we get caught up in that mindset of like if you're not pushing yourself, you're not living. And I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there's different people make up our sport, and for some people, just getting out there. Being in nature, enjoying yourself, is enough to float their boat, and that's absolutely fine. Yeah. Um, for some people, you know, we, we get caught up in the kind of you need to run longer because that's better, and I think that's rubbish as well. I think if you just want to do fifty ks, there's no reason at all to do one hundred ks. Doing a hundred k doesn't make you a better runner. Doing a hundred mile doesn't make you a better runner. Well, they're very different Pick races. your boat. But yeah, they're different races. Pick what excites mm. you. Now, going back to motivation, I think once you've got a race. Then you've got to look at the training. I think you've got to enjoy your training. Like, I saw a, I read an interview with Killian uh, just recently, and he was asked whether he likes um, racing expeditions the best. Which, if you could only choose one, which would he choose? He said, actually, I'd choose the third option, and I'd choose training,
0: huh.
1: which I thought was a fantastic answer. And it's something that I've always agreed with. Like, tra- training for me is what I get the buzz out of, the racing is the icing on the cake. Um, If it was only just about racing then i probably wouldn't do it um because
0: it's
1: just a massive amount of training for one day or two days or three days of the year you know And if you're not enjoying that training then it's it's a lot of it's a lot of time spent doing something you don't love just to do one or two races that you do love um so i think you've got to get that mindset into your head that you need to enjoy your training Otherwise, you're going to struggle. And I think it also reflects better in your racing, like if training is the thing that you get the most out of, you're going to race better because it's not putting all your eggs in one basket and going, oh, I didn't do well at my race. That sucks. What a waste of time in the last six months, all that effort, all that time, all that money, and I went an hour slower than what I wanted to. Yeah. You know, that, That's just a, a disappointing way to approach a racing. So I think you've got to really enjoy your training. And I think that comes down to making sure you run your easy runs easy and you run your hard runs hard. <laughs> you know? It comes back to what we were talking about before.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I, as I, um, I'm a school teacher by my trade, um, officially, mm-hmm. before I came into coaching. And, um, yeah, one of the things you talk about in teaching is your intrinsic motivation versus your extrinsic motivation. Yeah. So intrinsic, obviously, being the love of the activity. You know, what, you know, just enjoying the process of the activity as opposed to extrinsic is, oh, you finished a race. Here's your your finishers medal, you know. So, like, I, I do think that and obviously as a, as an educator, I was we were always striving to make students um, intrinsically motivated. But you can't make someone intrinsically motivated, which is that's the real no. challenge. But you've got to help them find that motivation, that intrinsic motivation. And I think that really feeds into what you said. Yeah, like you say, if even if you're training just like five to ten hours a week, but you for six months, that's a lot of training, you know. Like if you're just doing Mm -hmm. a casual, and so you've got to enjoy that process. Otherwise, like you say, you're doing the wrong sport, perhaps.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Look, I've had a few clients who come to me, and they go through a bit of a burnout phase. You know, they've they've decided to do too many races, or you know, a common thing is external stresses like family or financial or work or study stress kind of gets heaped on them and. It just compounds and they're not enjoying their training anymore the first thing i say to them is like okay first of all back off your training like let's cut out some intensity let's shorten your long run second thing let's do some different things let's do some trails you haven't done before let's take your watch off and just run you know your route you've done your routes enough time to know that that particular route you're going to take between 55 and 65 minutes take your watch off and just run for fun yeah. Like just do some different things so you get that enjoyment back in rather than being a slave to to your watch or to strava or to to your weekly totals like i got a client to um the other day i saw a i can't remember it was like a three or four k run on a sunday afternoon and i uh well it's a bit strange i didn't program that in That's a bit strange i looked yeah. at his total and it, it the total was, was 100.6 kilometers yeah. So before that run, it was, um, you know, 96 point something Ks So you just wanted to get 100 Ks in. Yeah. And look, that's that's fine if that's what, um, you know, if you really like to get that in. But I think if you're too much that way, then it can sabotage yourself. And look, I was the same. Like, I, I yeah. remember doing a 200 K bike ride for Ironman and um, I got back into my street it was 199.1. And I rode <laughs> up and down my street till it got to 200. Like, it's just ridiculous. Like, you know, there, there's no... No reason to do it at all.
0: And I would I, always I, say that close to one hundred percent of the people listening to this podcast have done that or, or, yeah, do, or, yeah. or will probably do that today
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. um, but I think I think long term for trial running and ultra running, if you can get away from that mindset, yeah, you're going to be better equipped to deal with the the variability of trial running. Like I still get clients saying, you know, oh, the course is short and the course is long or whatever, like, No, I coached probably 40 people for Ultra Trail Australia last year. Yeah. And the differences in readings were between 95 and 110K and 3,000 and 5,000 meters of vert. Like, if you get hung up on numbers, you're just going to be upset and disappointed. Like, it's just, you need to adopt a bit more of a holistic, kind of overall outlook on on training and racing. Road running is different. Like, marathon running and road running, you know, when I was training for IMAT, it's all about the numbers. Yeah, I knew, you know four twenty-minute Ks would get me a three-hour marathon. So when I set off off the bike, I just looked at my watch. I knew what pace I had to run out, and I just went, well, you know what? If I need to qualify, if I want to qualify for Hawaii, I need to run a sub three hundred five marathon today, or it ain't going to happen. So off I went. You no, know, that was it. It was all about the numbers. Whereas for trail running, you just can't look at it like that. It just blows up in your face. So, you've got to adopt a bit more of a kind of overall holistic attitude towards it. And I think that comes down to motivation as well. If if you're always looking at the numbers, it's just demotivating sometimes because yes. you go out and do a session and it's five minutes slower because the trails are muddy or it's ten degrees hotter or you know, whatever reason. And if you're hung up on those numbers, it just gets demotivating.
0: And, and exactly yeah. the temperature there's so many external factors, as you say, that will affect your performance and even you know, oh, I don't understand, my my heart rate was so much higher today but because it was probably 10 degrees hotter and you, yeah. d- you didn't get a very good night's sleep and you didn't drink enough water and you had a hard day at work and, you know, there's all these factors that could make you feel, yeah, exactly. So, oh, I don't know why I was 30 seconds slower per kilometre or 15 seconds yeah, slower, sorry. but yeah. But I mean, and I think there's nothing wrong with people um, wanting to run their best race as well. I mean, even if you're a middle of the pack, back of the pack. Absolutely not. We, we all want to run a PB. That, that, that's, and I think that's, Absolutely. you know, I mean, not necessarily, but not necessarily <laughs> always, but like I, um, my motivation when I run and I try and put this on my, my, um, my sort of talk to my clients about it is I have, I, I look at my a race in terms of the the build up to a race and then the race itself sort of as two separate entities. And um, I always, you know, I, when I'm building up for the race, and if it's a race I really want to do well in, I'll spend a lot of time eliminating all the the uh, external the factors that I can control, you know, or, yeah. or improving the factors of, that I can control. Do as much of the correct training. Make sure my nutrition is on point. Make sure um, I've got, you know, all the, the right gear and, and things like that. And then when I get into the race, I try just to be in the race and be in the moment and actually enjoy the day. Um, And I find that, and and I call it, I use the term, I don't even know if this is a real term, but I say I'm I'm aggressively optimistic in a race. Um, And so I do, I said, no matter what happens, I'm going to stay positive and I'm going to ride that positive wave. I'm going to choose to be positive throughout the day. And I mean, because yes, as you know, especially in an ultra, there are those low points and um, some people I mean I don't know like I want to enjoy the experience as much as possible so yeah I make that choice so that's my approach to um to how I how I race and I don't know as far as yourself like when you okay so not so much your so, I mean you're still racing now aren't you do you still you're still competing
1: yeah I haven't competed for a uh... A little while now, but that's just due to two very young kids that have, um, as yeah. you would know, yes. play havoc with, uh, with sleep and stuff. But I, yeah, I'm still racing. I'm back back next you hopefully, uh, with a miler, um, hopefully. But yeah, I mean, some good points there, mate. I've just a few things I thought we'd pick apart there. First of mm. all, um, just finishing off on motivation. Um,
0: yeah.
1: A few things that help. People can remember that motivation is fleeting, whereas um, consistency and momentum can take you through periods where motivation is lacking. So for me what happens, and this is what I say to my clients, if if you can get a habit and get into a routine and then you don't need as much motivation to keep that going. Yeah. So, you know, using myself as an example, like I've had a couple of years where, you know, I've got a nine month old and a three and a half year old and both have been very challenging in terms of sleep wise. So yep, as any parent would know Sleep promotion, plays havoc with uh, normal routines. So for me, you know, I used to get up at, you know, 6, and go for runs, be home 7 7, 7.30. Uh, and that worked well as, you know, a married couple with no kids. But with kids, what I found was that meant I had to leave my wife at home looking after two kids while I was out training. And I struggled with that for a while and I'd miss sessions because I'd feel guilty and cut sessions short because I'd feel guilty. And yeah, absolutely. just just struggled with trying to get some consistency. So... For me, it was more a case of it trying to identify why I wasn't consistent. So, I mean, you could look at that and say I wasn't motivated, but I was motivated. I just couldn't find a way to get consistency. So then, what I did was, okay, I need to get up at four thirty in the morning to get my runners done by six. Yeah. So when kids wake up, I'm there and can help my wife, and we can both look after the kids, and then I don't feel guilty. So that took, you know, it took me a little bit of time, a couple of weeks, to kind of get into the habit. But now that I've got into that habit, getting up at 4.30 is no big deal. I'll get up, do him a run, and fine. So sometimes with motivation, we kind of think, oh, I'm just not motivated at the moment. I'm struggling with training. You've got to look at what the obstacles to training are and see whether it's not really a motivation issue. It's just a practical issue in terms of work's really busy. I'm getting home late. I'm not getting to bed early enough. I'm too stressed. That's not motivation. That's just life getting in the way and yeah. providing obstacles. And you've got to either accept that, okay, I need to back off my training a bit because this is a particularly stressful time at work, or, you know what, I could probably do without the hour of TV at night. I could probably go to bed at 9.30 instead of 10.30 and get up a bit earlier. Um, The second thing with motivation is I think constant um, reaffirmation of why you're doing this and what you're doing it for really helps. So I know when I did Ironman, um, I'd probably not go a week in my Ironman training with not watching an Ironman video. Yeah. Um, granted, I was living at home 25, no commitments, 20 hour a week job, so I had all the time in the world. But when I was doing my ergo sessions in the basement downstairs, i just chuck on an IMAN video and watch those guys race. So it was a constant reaffirmation of yeah. what I'm doing it for. And then what, also, what I also did, and this works really well, is you know, in the 12 weeks leading up to my race, I planned out every single session was old school back then, so I wrote it all out in a bit of paper. I stuck it on a pin board behind my desk, and then I got a highlighter, and every session that I did, I highlighted that I'd done the session. Now, my goal was to not have one session unhighlighted in the last 12 weeks. And the year that I qualified, that's exactly what happened. I didn't miss a single bike run or swim session for 12 weeks leading up to the race. Now, for me, that was hugely motivating because every morning I woke up and I felt tired. I thought, if I don't train today, I have to leave. A square on my, no, my training program and, I'm <laughs> and it's going to glare at me for the next 12 weeks if that one session wasn't done um, and with the use of software these days with training peaks I know some of your uh, listeners may use training peaks and if your coach sets your program or you set your own programs when you do the session it gets marked green when you do it kind of roughly it gets marked orange if you don't do it, it gets marked red so it's the same kind of thing. And I think that's hugely motivating for a lot of people. They want green squares. They don't want red. Um, other things that help is, you know, as i mentioned with, with the IMAN videos, it's just every week, just look at the race website you signed up for. Remind yourself why you want to do that race. Yeah. What is it about that excites you? Watch the race videos. You know, read blogs of people that have done the race before. Um, get excited about it. Talk to other right, um, athletes that have run the race. Get their thoughts about it. Into the race as much as you can because that's what really motivates you to get out there when it's cold and wet or super hot. Um, but the other thing with, with training is that I kind of look at training and racing as a little bit differently to you in a way, but um, there's some similarities there. I look at racing and training as climbing a mountain, and if you only ever climb a mountain to see the view at the top, then you're going to be disappointed maybe not nine times out of ten, but half the time it's going to be cloudy and foggy and you're going to see not much at all. Yeah. Whereas if you enjoy the climb, then every time you climb the mountain, you're going to have an enjoyable experience.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, if it's if it's beautiful weather at the top, if it's a fantastic race, it's the icing on the cake. It's just the you know the bee's knees. But even if the race doesn't go well, then it's still been a good year's training. Like an Ironman, you know, my second year... Uh, the seat to hold the, the seat post onto your bike snapped in half. And I, one minute I'm riding on the bike, next minute I'm skidding along the bitumen at 30 k's an hour on my back going, what the hell happened then? I had to wait 45 minutes for a spares van, finish the race an hour slower than what I hoped. But, okay, disappointment, but I had a great year's training. Yeah. So, yeah, it was disappointing, but I knew that I could qualify. It just meant another year's training. Okay, another year's training. Big deal. It's another year's training, doing something I love to do. Like, that's not the end of the world. Like, yeah. it's a first world issue. It's not like you're so I right. Leg, I can't run again. It's like, oh, I have to do another year's Ironman training, doing something I absolutely love to do, to do another race again. Like, okay, you're right.
0: They're so privileged to be able to do this, and yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, um, like,
1: yeah. And I think the last thing you said was about being in the moment. I think that's something that is extremely important, both in racing and training. Like if we could be in the moment in every training session and every race, then we would enjoy training a lot more. Because let's face it, if we go out for an easy run or a long run and we stay present for that whole long run, then that means we can't think about how good we felt in the last long run. We can't think about how far there is to go and how hard that's going to be because we're staying in the present. Um, And if you can't think about those things and you're doing something you love, it can only be a good run. Yep. There's no other way. It can't be a bad run because you're not thinking about the fact that it's so hot that you're running a minute per k slower. You're not thinking about the fact that your legs are much more tired than usual because you're not thinking what usual was. You're only thinking about what you were presented with today, not previously. Absolutely. Uh, and I think if you can do that, you, you'll train effectively and race effectively. And the, just the last thing on that, um, you mentioned about being positive. And I think that's, in general, really good advice but I think sometimes when you're at that really low point in a, in a race, being positive is a step too far. and I think being neutral is achievable. I think once you're neutral, then the step to positive is an easier step to make. So if you're at that point where in a mile I like you know 110k, 50k to go, my stomach's feeling very, very ordinary, my legs feel like they're shot. I'm walking when I know I should be running, It's 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm so tired. Trying to find some positivity out of that. It's doable in some cases, but for a lot of people, it's just a step too far. If you can turn that around and go, you know what? Okay, I feel all this. That's okay. All I've got to do now is put one foot in front of the other and see what happens. Exactly. And then, straight away, you've turned out from being whinging about how bad you are to go, all I have to do is put one foot in front of the other, and let's just see how I feel in a minute's time. And just that simple mind switch Allows you to start dwelling on the kind of neutral stuff. Okay, I'm still moving. I'm not injured. I'm still moving. That's good. Mm-hmm. And once you start that thought process, then you can start being more positive And 15 minutes later, you're going. Actually, I feel alright again. And then you're back into the race again.
0: Yeah, that's a yeah. You're right. Make some really good points there. I I um I think it's also yeah just being comfortable with feeling bad as well. That's yeah, a, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because, I mean, I I know I say I'm aggressively positive in my races, but it's not to say I always feel good, but it's just that I am trying to make positive choices throughout the day, you know, Um, and and focusing on, you know, quite often I'll go, what part of me feels good right now? Because everything else hurts. So, (laughs) you know, (laughs) my nose feels good. Not that it matters, (laughs) but but it feels good, you know.
1: I think think acceptance is the other thing that's key. Like, you know, if you signed up to a 100k race or a 100 mile race and you get to 70k's and your quads are shot, you are going to go, you know what, did I expect anything else? Did I, did I really think that at 70k's my legs weren't going to complain pretty loudly? Okay, they might be complaining more loudly than what has been previously, but that goes back to being in the moment and accepting this race on this day as being this experience and not comparing it to others. So if you can accept that today, this is how the legs feel, and it's a a miler, it's an ultra, it's a 100k race, it's going to be tough. And that's why I signed up to do it in the first place. Like if I got to the end of this race feeling, you know what, that felt very comfortable, way easier than I thought it was going to feel. You'd be disappointed because we signed up for a challenge. We signed up to be tested um, and it's through overcoming those challenges that we get that sense of achievement um, at the end of the race. So otherwise we'd run 50k slowly and finish 50k and go, I finished 50k. But we wouldn't be happy with that because we ran it went slowly and it wasn't the distance we wanted to challenge ourselves with. So we've got to accept that if we wanna feel that sense of achievement afterwards, we've got to accept that it's gonna be hard. And that comes with the territory. So once again, if you can get into that acceptance state even when things suck, then you're gonna come out of that kind of mental state a lot quicker.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you, I could talk to you all day about this stuff, Andy, and um but I, I realize we're we've we're burning through time very quickly. So I'm just going to jump ahead to um, probably my last couple of points before we wrap it up. Um, And this is kind of a big one that I wanted to ask you about is um, human limits. So, you know, um, Ilya Kipchoge, the Kenyan marathon legend, recently smashed the world record in the marathon. He ran just under 2.02, I think, at Berlin. And... um, you know, and he's got the. He's. I mean, he's a beautiful runner to look at, and he. He's a. He's got a really amazing approach to training, I think, and just life in general. And he always. His quotes. He's got this famous quote that he always says is, um, "No human is limited," and I. I'd like to just sort of unpack that a little bit, the reality of that quote because, there are limitations, in some respect. You know, I think. And I'm just thinking about running in general and trail running. Like where where are we in terms of what we can what humans or how how can we get faster? And how much faster can we get as 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 humans? And I know it's a huge question in a lot of ways, but
1: <laughs> I'll try I'll try and wrap it up quickly for you. Um, First of all, I'm not a big believer on the whole thing about you can be anything you want to be, you can do anything you want to to do, because it's just rubbish. We're all genetically limited in some way, shape, or form. I know for me personally, if I devoted my whole life to marathons, I probably had the genetic potential to run maybe sub-230, maybe, like if I just devoted... All my 20s to doing nothing else but marathon training, but that never would have got me to the even the Olympic trials. It would yeah. have got me to the Olympics. You know, I could have dreamt and put af- positive affirmations all over my wall at home saying Olympic marathoner. I could have done all the stuff that these self help gurus say to do, and I never ever would have made the Olympic marathons. You know, it doesn't matter yeah. how we would have trained. Genetically, we are all limited to some way, shape, or form. But I also don't think many of us reach those limits at all but going into human limits in general you know I think the limits on the human marathon we're much closer to than in ultra and trial running I think we're a long 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 way away from our limits in um, ultra trial running
0: yeah
1: um, for, for a number of reasons to just a numbers game like Let's face it, when we look at elite athletes and we talk the, the Kipchogees, the, the Bumps, the, the Phelps, you know, those yeah. one-in-a-lifetime type athletes, they're genetic freaks, let's be honest. They're genetic freaks that train their asses off um, and make the most of the, the genetic freak that they have. Now, it's just a numbers game that another genetic freak is going to come along even more genetically freakish eventually at some stage yeah. in the distant future. So those... Times will come down, but the bigger genetic freak they are, the longer it will take statistically to get another genetic freak who's better than them. Yeah. So I think the September marathon is going to fall probably within our lifetimes, probably within the next decade, maybe in the next five years. But I think, you know, a 150 marathon is a long, 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 long way away.
0: Yeah, it's like so 100 years.
1: Western yeah. States, yeah. Um, which are records 1420, I think. I think the chances of a sub fourteen are extremely high. The chances of a sub thirteen and a half are very, very high. The chances of a sub thirteen, I think, are also fairly high in the next ten, twenty years. And the reason for that is, you know, there's there's lots of talk about the Kenyans going to trail running, and I, yeah. I think it's I think it's unfair on the good trail runners nowadays to say that if you took took Kipchoge and gave him two years trail running, he'd be smashing Western states and UTMB. I don't think that's the case at all, but I think if you took someone who, can, who genetically could run a 2.10 marathon, whether they have or not, immaterial, but someone genetically who with the right training, could run a sub 2.10, and if he took up trial running at the age of 18, then I think we're going to see some records smashed by a long, long way in trial races, whether it be UTMB or Western States or any of those trial races. Yeah. I think we're a long, long, long way because we just haven't had the numbers that people of highly genetically gifted athletes doing ultra-trial running. Just, when you compare it to marathon running, the numbers just aren't there. So they suggest that we're a long, long way away from our potential. How we'll get there? Look, I think, um, first of all, we're already there if the genetically gifted athlete was there. Like Killian's a good example. He's just smashing it and doing things that... People just can't fathom, and that's because he's trained for 20 years, 25 years, virtually non stop.
0: Yeah,
1: and look at his training, he's like the Kenyans, he's trained all his life, and he's done progressively more and more year in, year out. Um, now, we talk about going from 60k a week to 100k a week in training, he's talking about going from 5000k a year to 6000k a year to 8000k a year in training over. know decades consistency that's what and he's healthy you know yeah that's why he can do you know the pikes peak marathon or a a sky marathon one week and go out and smash utmb or hard rock the next week um because he's got that condition in his legs so i think you know those guys are already you know going beyond the limits of of what we thought was possible even five years ago and someone like jim onsley is a great example of that like you know jim's a 212 marathoner i think off the top of my head
0: yeah fast
1: uh, so he's quick like there's no question he's quick but he's not like in terms of marathon running 212 is not that quick when, no. you to, when you put it at, at you know, if you put him into berlin he's not top 10 um you know, so and he's running 14, 1420 for western states um on a hot year um and you know, Jim himself was aiming for sub-14, and I think he's definitely capable of doing that. So I think just with the training principles we've got now, with the right athletes over a period of time, we will get there, but I think like all sports, we get better and better at knowing how to improve our athletes and, and what kind of training sessions give them the best bang for their buck and how to periodize their training over the years to get the best out of them. I think that's also going to uh, become more and more refined as the years go by. Um, as elite athletes are always looking for the, you know, the one percenters, um, whether that be legal drugs or illegal drugs, um, whether that be things like ice baths, cryotherapy, beet juice, um, there's new research on marijuana, um, legally, or the, you know the THC uh, being used to help performance, really? all those sort of thing. Yeah. just being we're at the forefront of that in terms of how effective it is for ultras. So I think that's going to become more and more relevant to the elite because at the moment the elites are all over the park in terms of training. And if you compare two elite runners, their training is quite a lot different. Um, and as time goes by, gradually training will become more similar as the best training systems are worked out. Because if you look at the elite marathon runners and compare you know, compare 10 guys that can run 205, and their trainings not a lot different there's certain you know, differences but in generally they're all doing pretty similar things but if you compare you know ten guys going under 24 hours using a B you'll see a pretty wide variety of different training systems especially intensity but I think as we get more and more knowledge of what works best there's going to be less and less differences and we'll get more and more effective at training and then once that happens then the 1% has become more noticeable which yeah. I think at the moment where, where training differs so much those things are swallowed up in the noise and variability of training itself. Yeah. Uh, whereas once you've got like swimmers and track athletes, where training's so regimented and so well documented as to what works, those one percenters can make a bit more of a difference.
0: I think it's hard with them um, trail running and mountain running um, in terms of there's just so many variables in the sport. Yeah. You know, and it's not. Yeah. Whereas on a flat surface race like a track or a road. It's yeah, it's not as many variables. So yeah.
1: it's just so much easier to track when there's less variables. When there's more variables, you know, if something improves something by one or two percent, if you're mm. Kipchoge, one or two percent might be a sub two hour marathon. Compared well, when the world record was 4 percent was sub two, so one or two percent is significant at two o two marathon level. It could be a difference between one fifty nine and two o one thirty. Whereas one percent in in Western states can be swallowed up by one degree hotter than the previous run, yeah, so it's just so hard to know whether these things make any difference and that's something that comes back to you know going right back to our one of our initial discussion points was coaching is you look at all these things about are they improve performance by one two percent, whether that be running economy or vo2 or whatever like something like that. Can't really apply that to trial running because we just don't know. We don't know whether improving your run economy over a 5K race improves performance over a 100 mile in the mountains. We just don't know that. So, all these kind of one percenters, whether it be beet juice or the latest shoe or whatever the supplement might be, we just don't know enough and can't test well enough to know whether they're going to make much of a difference or not. And I recommend people forget about them and just focus on training more effectively because if you can train consistently. Yeah. And effectively, year in year out, that's going to have a much bigger effect than some of those one percenters.
0: I think you're right. Consistency is key, and I yeah. um, I uh, would of, often say focus more on, especially for us amateurs, um, focus more on on the macro than the micro. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you get the macros right, you're not going to. You're. It is like it, they call it one percenters for a reason because it's one. It's such a. It does make up a very yeah. small percentage. Maybe, yeah. So. But I mean, a lot of people aren't getting their macros right. They're not. They're not being consistent. They're not running well, the simple, slow.
1: The simple thing, the simple drug that um, gets you the biggest performance is serotonin in terms of sleep. I
0: know. Like, it's the
1: fact that out. that's that's a basic. If you can just get an extra hour of sleep a night, that's you no. Know, it's been scientifically shown across a huge number of sports that increasing sleep increases performance. Um, and, and the, the difference between elite in terms of Olympic athletes and elite in terms of the trial runners is that 99% of even elite trial runners are still working hours because there's very few people in the sport that are getting paid enough to support them. So unless you're a Chilean or a gym or someone like that, you're probably working a part-time job as well. Exactly. So the mm. first thing you can do is try and get sleep before you even start thinking about drugs. Which of course I don't recommend at all, but yeah. you know, the five I'm talking about. Get sleep before you start focusing on beet juice or anything like that.
0: But yeah, definitely as a parent with a, I've got a one-year-old, and oh, he, yeah. and um, and yeah, I miss a, I miss my good night's sleep, you know, like and the but the day the nights when he does sleep right through, I wake up bursting with energy, and I I really noticed the difference. And oh, big Yeah, and so and and you do you go out and you run and you and you you go and the world looks different and you and you perform better, <laughs> you know, but um but no it's uh, it's such a, a a fascinating topic the whole sleep thing which we could talk a lot about I know a lot of coaches actually factor sleep into their training programs you know even yeah
1: for... you've got to you've got to as an athlete you've got to mm. listen to what sleep you're having and you know if you're sleep deprived you, you can't handle the same volume. Um, you're more risk of injury and you probably can't handle the same intensity and you just got to accept that. I know for me now, like for me, with the sleep that I'm getting, you know, 70 to 80k a week is about my upper limit with the five to seven hours broken sleep that I'm getting at the moment. Whereas when I was training for UTMB with no kids, um, a job that allowed a lot more freedom, um, eight, nine hours sleep a night, I was doing 120, 140k a week with no problems at all yeah just that's you know it's 40 60k a week more than what i can do now just from sleep and more time
0: yeah it's frustrating difference. isn't it but um yeah.
1: how well, old you know, that's life
0: how old's your baby uh nine months ah uh, yeah uh, boy or a girl boy your little boy too yeah that yeah. Well, he'll get he'll get there he'll start sleeping yeah. and you won't <laughs> know yourself
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> no look Andy, it's been an absolutely awesome chat i really appreciate um talking with you i could literally talk to you for another two hours
1: but i realize yeah, <laughs>
0: we've got we've got there's so many there are other topics that i wanted to touch on but um Matt might, might have to save them for another discussion i yeah, uh, could do another one if
1: you wanted to touch on some other topics that'd be
0: yeah oh another topic now or later uh,
1: either or i'm 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 good for
0: a little bit longer All right. uh, but, okay i'll yeah. touch on one more a couple more this is another can of worms it's very fascinating which is also very wide-ranging Um, So, um, and that is running economy, something that a lot of people don't fully understand and I wanted you to unpack it a little bit for us, like what is it and how can we improve it? It's obviously not the economy around buying vests and shoes and stuff like that. So, (laughs) what is running economy?
1: Okay, simply put, running economy is a measure of how efficient you are running at a certain pace. Um, So, if you have a better running economy, if you put two runners together on a treadmill, running at 15K an hour, and one person's got a better running economy than the other, then they are using less energy to run the same pace as the other runner. Now, lots of variables go into having a better running economy, um, from better VO2 max, better threshold, better use of elastic energy in your muscles, um, better running um, technique, Um, all those factors go into running economy. so in general, the better run economy you have, the more efficient runner you are, and you can either that means you can either run the same speed for longer because you're using less energy to run that speed, or you can run slightly faster because you can now burn the energy that you were year, burning before at a slower speed, but run at a faster speed. Um, so improving run economy is is a good goal for most runners. Now where it gets interesting is that there is some suggestion in, in some studies that say running economy may be sacrificed for ultra runners now this was a more what you call an opinion piece i.e it's a, a paper that was written by some very well respected researchers in ultra running that put together some reasons why running economy might be not the bee's knees for ultra runners and why running a bit less economical might cause a bit less muscle damage in the legs and therefore allow us to run bit more effectively so it's a bit of an interesting one um and i think there's truth in, in both those things in that the better running economy we have the longer we can run at the same kind of effort level intensity um but it's also not that these knees are also going to look at how we can train to make sure we don't end up with smash legs at the end of a race yeah so it's a bit of both in terms of, and I can guess the next question, in terms of how to improve running economy. Yep, well done. <laughs>
0: that was my next uh, question.
1: Yep. Uh, strength training is a big one. Uh, there's very, very well-documented research to show that strength training improves running economy. Um, pretty much for all runners, uh, i.e. experienced or non experienced, um, 3K all the way up to marathon, Um it's pretty much universal. It's, there's very little argument that strength running doesn't improve running economy. Um, Whether discussion gets interesting is what kind of strength training works best. Um, the general consensus is heavy weight training is the most effective. However, I'm kind of um, not as much in agreement with that as there are some studies that suggest that for marathon runners and by um, association, ultra marathon runners, um, it's not as effective. Um, and I think the reason for that is that obviously heavy strength training will invoke more fast switch muscle fibres, and getting your fast switch fibres working more effectively is great for a finishing kick in a 5K or a 10K, and obviously great for 800 or 1,500 or even shorter. Um, yeah. But for a marathon, your fast switch fibres really aren't going to be used at all. Even if you're going to pick it up towards the end, you're still not getting into fast switch fibres, you're still just getting into slow-twitch. Yeah. So I don't think the fast switch fiber argument has any weight in terms of marathon and ultramarathon running. Interesting. Um, so I think there's still some neuromuscular gains by like doing really heavy weights, trains the neuromuscular system to activate the muscles more effectively. So that just means, for those who are a bit kind of bamboozled by those technical words, neuromuscular kind of means the brain-muscle connection um, and how well that brain-muscle connection is. And the the, the better you can use that it's, it's virtually like uh if you imagine the the messages from your brain to your muscles going along a road uh the better the connection it's more like a super highway like a, a um, superbahn expressway in, in germany where you can go yeah. 300 km an hour whereas if you're doing a skill you've never done before let's say you've never played music before and you pick up a guitar and you try and play guitar it's virtually like you're going on a dirt road in the adelaide hills
0: yeah
1: bumpy it's just and yeah. Bumpy, it's, yeah it's really not that good and you get lost along the way and it takes you ages to get where you're going it's a really so great illustration s- that yeah. neuromuscular connection the faster and the easier the more effective it is yeah um so heavy strength training does does help that but i kind of think that what's shown to be consistent whether it be marathon or 3k is plyometrics um so that just simply means hopping jumping skipping bounding that kind of stuff and that's Pretty well universal, there's virtually no one that will disagree that plyometrics doesn't help running. Um, the disagreement, of course, or the argument, debate is what kind of plyometrics, and you'll get the heavy strength coaches saying you need to squat heavy before you can do plyometrics. And, yes, if your plyometrics refers to, you know, weighted jumps and depth jumps off a metre-high box, landing, stuff like that, yes, you need to have very good muscular strength. But if you're talking about just jumping up and down on the spot, skipping hopping, that kind of stuff. No, you don't need to have squat twice your body weight to do that. You can start very small just by jumping up and down 20 times on the spot uh, and then in gradually increasing that. So I think there's the spectrum of plyometrics, and I think if you're smart and build up gradually, then plyometrics is, is a very, very valuable training tool for every runner, ultra runner or 3K runner. That's if I can where,
0: jump in there, that's really interesting. Yeah. I've, sorry, I've, I completely agree with you on the um, plyometrics. Um I read a lot about you know, and the, one of the limiting factors on how fast people can get is ground contact time. So how long your foot is on the ground is you know a big difference on how fast you're running. So the long, the more time that your foot is actually on the ground, obviously you're going to be going slower to an extent. Um, and so plyometrics are the best way to in, improve that because you're using the um, the free energy they call it, isn't it? In the um, yeah, in,
1: you're get in tendons. independence. Right. Yeah,
0: and yep, so. Exactly.
1: Um, Yeah, that's what I look for with um, with some of the data I have I can measure um, ground contact time Yes, Uh, and you'll see with elite ultra runners. We're talking a ground contact time of very low 200 uh, milliseconds Um, And for your average punter, we're looking more towards 300 Uh, And that depends on speed too like the faster you run the quicker it is and the slower you run the slower it is But yes, definitely the quicker ground contact time you have the better use of elastic energy you have So simply put, to unpack that concept a bit, is that when you land, um, a certain amount of your energy can be stored in your tendons, just like stretching a rubber band. So and that energy comes for free, it just comes from gravity. So using a really simple example, you can use Achilles tendon. So when you land, your calf and Achilles tendon goes through a stretch, much like a rubber band gets stretched, and when when you let the rubber band go, it flings forward. So when you drive off the ground, that Achilles tendon releases that energy and, and propels you forward. So that energy comes for free. And that system applies to the tendons and muscles in your feet, in your hips, in your knees. But uh, The Achilles tendon is where it happens most effectively. So that's what we, we look at when we term, talk about elastic recoil or best use of kinetic energy. Uh, and the most effective runners use that energy the most effectively. Now, the longer ground contact time you have, the more energy gets released into the ground and therefore can't be used by you yeah. which is what when you look at ineffective slow runners it looks like almost every step is a labor to get himself back up off the ground again to the yeah. next step whereas when you look at someone like Kipchoge running along and it looks like he's just tapping the ground underneath him and using virtually no energy at all yeah so that's where good running economy efficiency comes into play is that he's just such an efficient runner even when you compare his efficiency to other elite runners, his efficiency is just outstanding, which is why he can run one fifty something for a marathon. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: It's fascinating. And, um, yeah, it's funny. I don't know this example that I've heard numerous times. And may, and I'm, and when you look at, like, a kangaroo, for example. Um, yeah. They, they um, apparently, I think, is it their heart? That, because they've got their, their st- such strong tendons. They use less energy. I think they somehow measured their heart. They did some study um, where the longer they jumped, the, the bigger the, the distance of their, of their bound was actually, they actually were operating on a lower heart rate and, and like there was less effort involved because once they got that momentum, and it's, so I guess the way they translated that, this may be incorrect, so I'm just throwing it out there. Um, but, um, basically the longer the stride or the more air time in your stride, um, but essentially it's recovery time. And we call like when we look through the, the, you know, one stride, there's the, the phases in your, in your stride, you know, you're your recovery phase, um, if, when you're in the air, you're not contacting with the ground. Therefore you're not putting your muscles under load. And so I guess the less, the more responsive you are to the ground. You know, like Chogi, for example. Again, yeah. it's just that it it he's not putting as much load on his body because he's just he's gliding over the top of the ground, as opposed to running into the ground. Um,
1: Look, that's a good analogy, and I think it can go too far the other way. And I think for most people, the easiest way to understand this is think about a kid or, or an adult on a skateboard. Now, it's just in a way, it's a similar action to running. Now, if you took lots and lots of really fast kind of um, steps with your, your leg to propel you along you'd be very inefficient. If you took one massive really drove hard off your leg you could glide for further but the amount of energy required to do that is massive. Yeah. Now something in between is that sweet spot between the least number of pushes off the ground possible versus the, the fastest speed possible. Uh, the same goes for running. If you have too long a flight time then the ground impact forces are going to be larger. If you have too short a flight time, then you've got to take too many strides, um, so you lose energy that way. So in between, there's a sweet spot, and that sweet spot's different for everybody. You know, the whole idea of 180 cadence being the best is complete rubbish. Mm-hmm. Um, cadence can depend on speed. Like I know for me, my cadence varies very little. Coincidentally, it's 178 to 182, yeah. almost regardless of speed. Whereas I know someone like Ben Duffus, he's, his long runs might be in the 160s, but if he's doing intervals, it might be 190. And if you look at some of the, the Kenyan 5,000-meter runners, and like Mo Farah, they might get to 200 in the dying stages of a, the last lap of 10,000. Yeah. One is not better than the other. They're just Different. how you are made up. Yeah. Um, so you've got to find that sweet spot in terms of the most effective stride length and cadence that works well for you. Uh, and that will minimise the amount of energy you have to use to run a certain pace, maximise your running economy, minimise ground contact forces, and make it the best runner you can be. Yeah,
0: that's a really – so this is also feeding back into sort of running economy essentially, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. so it's another fact, a huge factor that, um, yeah, it is um, – I did hear the study going back to the kangaroo that just – there was apparently they put kangaroos on a treadmill. I have to look it up and, and they actually, I <laughs> know I would love to see, oh, I need to find this because I did. I heard it in a podcast. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. Um, there's a podcast called the science of ultra. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, there was a gentleman on there that um, talked about this, um, doing this study with kangaroos on the treadmill and they were basically t- studying tendons and sinews and it just, I just can't imagine how they would have wrangled this kangaroo onto a treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. No, it is and – and this is the beautiful thing about running and thing in general is that there's so much science still to be explored, I think. Yeah. And, um, and there, but there's also such a huge volume of um, science that's been looked at, and, it, and I guess that's what makes it interesting, you know, for me. Yeah, look, I love one science.
1: thing, in, in terms of going back again to what we were talking about before in terms of easy runs – People forget that those really slow, easy runs do actually improve running economy. Yeah. You know, r- running is a skill. We, we don't think of it as a skill. We think of it just as an effort. Uh, but running is a skill, and the more you can run, the better that neuromuscular connection, and the better your brain figures out the way to run with the least amount of energy. Like our our bodies are amazing. We will gradually adapt to to any task given to us, whether that's running cycling, you know, picking up a kid repeatedly, whatever it is. Our bodies if we do something enough, we will learn to become more effective at that task. Yeah. That's why the elite runners over over any distance run long large volumes, because even running slow improves that neuromuscular coordination, improves your skill of running, improves your running economy. That's that's why we do it.
0: It's like that um the ten thousand hours rule, you know, you um they say with many skills or whether it's playing music or whatever they say takes ten thousand hours to master your domain you know whatever that is and i guess maybe running it could be more but it's i guess i like that idea that you know it does it takes time the more you do it the more often and again neuromuscular connections yeah fascinating i think um yeah it is a skill i say that to people too you you wouldn't go you've never been in a swimming pool before you can't I know we're different because we're built differently, but like you wouldn't just jump into a pool expecting to know how to swim efficiently, you know so I guess that's where running needs you need to sort of approach running in a similar mindset I, uh, yeah look
1: running is interesting there because there there's two schools of thought there's one school of thought says if you run enough miles, your form will adapt to the most efficient thought uh, form for you. The other school of thought says well, we can. There's an ideal running form. We should try and get people towards that ideal running form. And the reality for most good coaches is it's somewhere in between. Yeah. Is that my thoughts are that given enough time, we will adapt to the most efficient running form for the biomechanics, for the muscle strengths, weaknesses, range of movements that we currently have. That's not to say it's the most effective one for you. It's just to say that given what you do in your life, given that you sit at a desk 10 hours a day, given you've done no strength running before in your life, given you only took up running when you were 35, and this is the body you have, this is the most effective way to run. If, however, we were to do some work on your mobility, work on your glute strength, do some plyometric work, etc., etc., that would change the body you have to run, and that would make you a more effective runner and change your running form.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, In terms of changing running form itself, I think there's only a few little things you can consciously change to any degree of efficiency. I think we get too bogged down you can overthink your running and try and think about all the things you read about, about how to, what's good running form. I think really there's only a few factors you can think about and have a positive effect. And those things are really your upper body position, whether you're leaning forward too much or not enough, or whether you're too upright or not enough. Um, I think you can think about cadence to a degree. Um, most people can do with picking up their cadence. Not saying they should pick up to one eighty, but I see a lot of people down around the low 160s that are probably overstriding. Yeah. To um, so pick up their cadence a bit. Um, and that's really that's really the only cues I give most of my runners. To concentrate on some other things like driving through the hips or pulling the foot back or pulling the leg back can work well for speed sessions and then that translates into to easier runs. But other than that, there's a danger of overthinking your running and that just falls apart as well. So I think there's a there's a balance there.
0: I find that um, when I do speed sessions with my my runners, you know, I find that I always spend a fair bit of time just doing like run throughs and and yeah. some, and basic drills just to do. I guess some of it, sort of, some of those drills are a little bit plyometric in nature, um, and so. But I think I've, I have found, even just from my own, I mean, again, it's the the n equals one in my own experience as a runner, and seeing it in other runners a bit. Um, the just doing drills has been quite effective for um, just improving my technique and running probably more comfortably. And yes, I don't have the most perfect form, but I've got a. a I think I've. I've got a fairly comfortable form. I can run comfortably for a very long time. Um, and, yeah, and that's where I think speed stuff and drills have been really helpful. And I know a lot of other people have found that as well. And I guess the research is there to an extent as well. But, I mean, just a small amount of drills, high knees, bum kicks, yeah. you know. Yeah. like You're, you're um, moving a bit laterally, so maybe doing, like, your grapevines and things like that. Yeah
1: yeah all those sorts of things yep. yeah all oh, helps yeah totally agree yeah, yeah. Agree more.
0: no it's and it's another thing it's a very neglected part it's not something people will do unless no. they're, they're being coached to do it you know
1: no, um, i get most almost all my runners will do 10 by 100 meter strides uh, before speed and hill sessions and some of them will even do finish off an easy run with this 10 by 10 second strides um just to get that neuromuscular connection and get that you know connection with running form yeah and feeling us but easy oh, it, uh,
0: f- it feels I think, phenomenal yeah, i love connection. i love strides at the end of an easy run you know just yeah it's yeah, a really good way to do it. yeah it is um i think um I, I remember one of my favorite uh marathon runners was um was ethiopian uh hayley you know and he yeah. was he was big on that with it when he was running when he was still in his five thousand and ten thousand meter career i know he did a before he moved up to the marathon, he did a lot of those um, one hundred meter drills, and I I read, I read an article about it, and he did these oh, so the hundred meter um, sprints or strides, run, yeah. strides, yeah, and he um and it really helped with his kick, and he had an amazing finishing kick, you know, like for yeah. um, you know he then I think when he broke the ten thousand meter world record, he was able to run the last to break the record, he had to run the last two miles in under four minute miles, and he. <laughs> and he did it, you know. And they even it wasn't until the very last sort of 400 meters that they were like, Oh, he's gonna do it, you know. And um uh, so yeah, just you know, those kinds of things having a finishing kick at the end of a 10,000 meters is pretty handy, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, as you say, you, not very often you need it in a hundred miler, and, no. and <laughs> I think, I'll um, yeah, but usually when two people come to a finish line. At the, of a hundred if they're side by side with someone they're more than likely to run through together and that's yes. the nature of the sport i think that camaraderie yeah. but yeah look andy i'm going to have to wrap it up there we've run, yeah, out of, likewise, run out of time but just before you go it's been a fantastic chat and there's one little thing that i like to do with all of my guests that take you about two minutes um and it's i do a thing called uh the fast five and it's where i ask okay. five questions and you answer them sort of relatively short and they're just a bit of fun. It's a sort of connects everybody. Okay, so sure. first question. What is your favourite running film or documentary?
1: Um, good question. <laughs> There's probably loads. Um, probably the Barclays. The race
0: that eats its young. Yes, fantastic. On Netflix, it was good. I saw that. Yeah. 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 Good race, crazy race. Question, crazy. <laughs> question two. Speaking of crazy races, what is your dream race, or have you already done your dream race, or bucket list um, race? Tour de France is
1: probably the biggest dream race at the moment. Yeah.
0: Three hundred and thirty kilometers. How 24, many?
1: Twenty-four thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Big one. <laughs> <It's>, Indeed. <nature.
0: laughs> it makes UTMB look like a, a warm-up. Yeah. yeah. No, amazing. I'm, I'm sure you could get there. Question three, what is your favourite post-race treat? Uh, be it food or an activity? Uh, pizza. Pizza. I'll tell yeah. you, if I'm I was keeping stats on this, I think pizza would be way out in front. Um, yeah.
1: Question four is roads or trails? Uh, trails, without, without a doubt. Yeah. Like i said that. You know, I'm, I think uh, we forget running on roads is fun sometimes, but, you know, trails.
0: Yeah, it feels good to run fast sometimes.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Question five, I'd like you to finish this sentence. Running gives me... Freedom. Freedom. Fantastic, oh yeah, that's great, Andy. As a, again, I'll thank you one more time for uh, for uh, joining us, and I think um, I'm I'm pretty sure everyone will get a lot out of this. I know I certainly did, and um, hopefully we can have you again on the podcast another time.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. love to. Yeah. Okay. Cheers. It's great.
1: Thanks, Daniel.
0: Hey guys, so I hope you enjoyed that chat with Andy, I didn't, we could have spoke all day, you know, he's a fantastic, um, Andy's a fantastic resource in terms of his knowledge and he's just got some really, a really good way of putting things, I hope you got a lot out of it, Um, if you want to find Andy, you can find his, on his website, um, mile27.com.au, I highly recommend that website because he's got a fantastic blog on there with, um, contributors from some of his other coaches and you might and there's things you can learn and there's also links to his uh other social media pages so you can find mile 27 on facebook twitter google plus and youtube um just look for mile 27 and you'll find them um yeah and definitely check him out i think he's at the forefront of of a lot of training methods and uh, methodology and he knows his science he knows his coaching um so yeah thanks for um I really hope you're enjoying this podcast that I'm doing. I'm 22 episodes in and I've just really enjoyed doing it. It's become so uh, motivating for me and I, I just want to keep doing it. So if you want to, I want to try and keep bringing interesting guests on the show so everyone can uh, get something out of it. If you want to help me in any way at all, I would. what would be really helpful is if whatever platform you're li- listening to my show on, go on that platform and leave it a nice five-star review. It helps me out and it uh, it looks good and it costs you nothing to do. Take you two minutes. And don't forget, um, I've got my deal with Infinite Nutrition, pardon me, Infinite Nutrition and you go on their website, infinitenutrition.com.au and you can get 10% off all Infinite products if you just put in the code DRU at the checkout and you'll get 10% off. That'd be great.
1: So until next week, um, have a happy running week. Bye.